Hiya, Ed here with your friendly reminder to check the show notes for any content warnings related to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Also, just in case we've fucked up massively and made any big old spoilers related to any other movies, we'll pop those in the show notes too, so you can consider yourselves fully warned. Thank you, enjoy the episode. Welcome to The Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where we break down and discuss a movie each episode based on a link to the previous episode's movie. I'm Ed Howells and I'm here with my co-host, Madeline Gould. Hello, Ed. Hey. hey. <laughs> How are you? I'm all right. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm all right. How are you? I'm okay. Busy, busy. Not ready for Christmas. How are your uh, Christmas preparations going? My husband is currently 3D printing um, a biblically accurate angel to go on top of our tree, which I'm so happy about this is my favorite thing (laughs) be not afraid yeah (laughs) i really highly recommend googling biblically accurate angel because they're amazing Mm. and you know there's a reason that angels say be not afraid when they appear before people in the bible because they look absolutely terrifying the one we're going for it's wheels within wheels with a sort of flaming heart at the centre um, the wheels are covered in eyes um, and then it's going to have we think ten wings <laughs> ten ten um, um, oh. so they're more monstrous than you know what you might traditionally put on top of your tree <laughs> yeah so when uh, when we say to people that you're making a, a biblically accurate representation of an angel it's not because you're sort of deep in the bible and mad into angels is it of course not <laughs> i'm just saying we gotta make sure We've that it's make clear it for people clear. i'm not religious richard was raised catholic and um, but is lapsed we're not putting up a christmas tree because it's pagan although i probably am aligned more with that line of things than i am with the christian things but it feels appropriate mm. to have a biblically accurate representation of an angel on top of our christmas tree <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's um, that's uh, the highlight of my day. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, what has been the highlight of your um, this period of watching? Do you know, nothing that I'm emphatic about, but I've seen two films that I'd like to discuss with you. So I went to the cinema the other night to see The Peasants. Oh, yes, cool. Yeah, which is by DK and Hugh Welchman. Welchman? Mm-hmm. Welchman. It's by the same team who created the animated film Loving Vincent from a few years ago, which we did discuss briefly, didn't we, on our top 10 animations episode? Yeah, I think we. Uh, I think I, I brushed over it very briefly. It wasn't on my list, but it was an honourable mention. Yeah, um, yeah, so it's a fascinating method of animation where um, it's live action filmed and then a still is created of each frame, that live action footage, and then they hand paint it. So it's mm. hand oil painted. Loving Vincent, of course, about Vincent van Gogh. So that's extremely, it's kind of thematically linked to the animation style. I haven't actually seen it, but I'd love to. It's beautiful to look at. It's really, really stunning. And they are trying to recreate van Gogh's painting style in the animation style. So they've done, basically, they've done the same thing here with this. um, It's an adaptation of a Nobel Prize winning book 
called The Peasants by Vladislav Raymond. It's completely stunning to look at. But so for Loving Vincent, it made sense thematically for it to be hand painted mm-hmm. in this way. Whereas yeah. in this, I don't really get the connection. Like The whole way through, I was looking at it thinking this is extremely beautiful, but there is something mm-hmm. about it that's also a bit distracting. And the story mm-hmm. is good enough and the performances of the real actors are good enough that I could just get carried along through this without this animation style. So I yeah. was slight, like, while I appreciate its beauty, I do also think it was slightly distracting and I wonder how mm. successful it is. The story's fantastic, but it is a relatively kind of familiar tale of a, a young woman who falls in love with a married man, has an affair with him and then ends up having to marry his father. Okay. Um, so they end up in this kind of complicated love, tri- love triangle with, and there's all stuff to do with land and it's told through the seasons and it's about how the village is its own ecosystem and as the land needs to be tended and kind of cultured in order for them to survive on the cabbages that they're um, (laughs) harvesting and all of this the village and the society survives on this kind of constant churning over of gossip about who's sleeping with who and who's got a nice new bit of clothing and who's spent what on who and all of this and it's like the marriage takes place because a seed is planted in the head of the guy by someone who's interfering and he hadn't even thought he was going to get married again and then oh suddenly decided to get married and oh such and thing wouldn't have happened if such and such hadn't said that and pushed su- such yeah. and such in the frozen lake and it's like this churning over it's really good it's worth a watch and the absolute standout thing about it for me is the soundtrack the music is absolutely unbelievably good um it's by luc um who is an, a polish rapper mc and producer and luc fa- was one of the founding members of the international rebel or the rebel babble film orchestra who then made the score for this and it's amazing it really is great um uh, what, what's the other film that you wanted to chat about i saw napoleon how was it do you know it was it was good richard loved it because he decided uh, after about 20 minutes that he was going to read the film as a British satirical comedy. And from that perspective, he absolutely loved it. Oh, that's fun. My read on the film, as a piece of filmmaking, it's what I think is ingenious in it is actually mostly to do with the casting and the script because it's got Joaquin Phoenix obviously playing Napoleon Bonaparte and the rest of the cast is made up almost exclusively by a parade of British television comedy, oh, it's that guy actors. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you sat there and you're like, oh, it's Kevin Eldon. Oh, it's Miles Jupp. Oh, it's that guy from Green Wing. Really? <laughs> they they just keep turning up. And you get to the point where you're like, hang on, Miles Jupp has just turned up as the Holy Roman Emperor. And to me, that is quite deliberate and quite funny. It, it, it tells you what opinion Napoleon Bonaparte had of himself. He was the American movie star mm. in this sort of satirical British period drama. And he's standing around going like, why don't you guys get what I'm trying to do? here and everyone else is going like oh he's a bit out there isn't he (laughs) he's a bit intense i think there's an enormous amount to read into it that's very enjoyable it looks Mm. great the music's great it doesn't drag on too long it's very episodic so every it does give you a really good overview of napoleon's kind of career in told in these little vignettes so nothing outstays its welcome the performances are really good yeah i really i enjoyed it a lot more than i thought i would i thought i'd think it was pompous Ridley Scott misstep <laughs> yeah I I yeah 
I had a feeling that it would be that. Yeah, if it's more for, if Richard took it as a, a satirical spin on Napoleon, then um, yeah, kind of in. in I, on, I would be fascinated to know what American audiences think of it because honestly, mm. as a Brit sitting there and seeing all of these people turn up, you're like, oh. <laughs> but also, none of them are doing comedy, in, and in, actually, I would say the quality of the acting across the board in the film is really good. No one is doing too much. It's all quite subtle, and I think Joaquin Phoenix is great. I love watching him on screen I find him ever so ever yeah, so watchable and as a good historical epic should it made me immediately want to go away and read all about the people anyone who criticises it for not being historically accurate uh, that's not the point no for me. no. I, for me historical accuracy is a bonus it's a nice to have yeah and more important to me when I'm watching a movie is narrative and and I think that it gave me as a viewer a really good overview of where this guy had come from when this was happening what it meant, whether or not they had him reading from a letter that he sent to the Empress Josephine before he arrived at the pyramids in Egypt or after in the wrong place or whatever. I think, oh, who gives a fuck? Who cares? So yeah, I enjoyed it. I should say, um, my wife does disagree with me on that. Oh, really? And she feels quite strongly that historical accuracy is important, mostly because when these things become part of the narrative, whether you want it to or not, you look at um, Shakespeare's histories Mm. and they're all made up. They're all propaganda. (laughs) None of them is actually what happened. But here we are, whatever it is, how many hundred years later, and we all sort of take elements of those stories as Mm. historical fact. Richard III did not have a little withered hand. Well, I think from that respect, yeah, I absolutely agree with your wife. And I think that it absolutely depends on the context in which you're depicting these characters. The responsibility on me is on me to find out what the truth of a thing is and to not, not take a story to be the truth and the the classic example is Braveheart almost nothing in Braveheart is true and I've always just taken it as a story of uh, goodies and baddies stories are about a different kind of truth aren't they they're about Mm. a sort of human nature a Mm. truth of human nature rather than a factual this is what happened because actually if if you go in to watch Napoleon wanting um, a catalogue of historical events then Mm -hmm. you've chosen the wrong medium because there are countless excellent biographies of Napoleon that will give you factual details. This is cannons going boom and brocade jackets. <laughs> so uh, what have you been watching? Have you had chance to watch anything really this um, past couple of weeks? Yeah, I've, I've watched a few things. Uh, so I want to talk about one thing now and mm. then I want to talk about something else a little bit later. Oh God, I know okay. what you want to talk about later. <laughs> yeah, what, uh, what what I'd like to talk about later is Saltburn, which I finally went to see. And yeah. I think we've got um, quite different opinions, but it's not a film that we can talk about uh, without spoilers. So what I'd like to do is have the conversation at the very end. Um, so anybody who wants to hang around for that can listen to us chatting on about Saltburn and having a vigorous disagreement. <laughs> but what, I, the problem what, is I saw it several months you ago you saw it a long time ago I can't it's a little fucking fresher remember. in my mind you're going <laughs> to totally convert me by the end of the conversation I'm so fickle <laughs> ah, we'll see we'll see um, but now what, what I would like to ch- chat about very briefly is uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey Ooh, can you talk about that briefly is that possible oh yeah yeah no okay. yeah oh absolutely is yeah absolutely is this is probably the fourth time I've seen 2001 A Space Odyssey first time I saw it I was about 17 I guess or 16, 17 doing A-level media studies and that was completely the wrong situation in which to watch it 
Um, I've tried a couple of times subsequently. Um, I think I once told you that I, I wrote a snotty review about it on Amazon. Oh my gosh, um, please repeat this story because it's <laughs> so wonderful, Ed. Yeah, when I was a much younger person, and I, I use this to inform all, all of my opinions of uh, criticism, as in yes. it's just one idiot's opinion. So years and years ago, I wrote a very snotty review of 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, which I posted on Amazon, um, one star, and I just sort of left it there and kind of forgot about it. And then about eight or nine years later, <laughs> The Guardian published a supplement. It used to publish a, a, on a Saturday, a little sort of um, a TV guide supplement. Mm-hmm. I was sort of flicking through it and they had an article in there about reviews on Amazon and other online platforms of sort of classic works that are just brutal and scathing. And mine was quoted! <laughs> <laughs> I have subsequently um, been on Amazon and deleted that review. Just a magical story. I love that so much. It's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a somewhat checkered history with 2001. Um, I tried to watch it a couple of other times on DVD at home in a darkened room. And uh, yeah, couldn't get into it. So I thought, okay, it's coming to the electric in Birmingham. I'm never going to have a better circumstance in which to watch this film. And all right. so. (laughs) <laughs> I get it. It's a great film. Like when you look at every aspect of the filmmaking, uh, so the visual design, the sound design, the te- the technical achievements of some of that anti-gravity stuff mm-hmm. uh, in there and just the imagination of all of that is extraordinary. It's very very impressive. <sighs> fucking boring though isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really dull i'm sorry it it, it just is yeah it, it is a, a great work of art but it leaves me wanting sleep much like actually the mona lisa uh, yeah. i've seen the mona lisa and it, yeah it's a great work of art that doesn't do anything for me personally i think that just because a work of art as i think all film is a work of art whether or not you like it and it's to your taste but um first of all it's a subjective art form but also you cannot apply the context of the people who originally saw it and labelled it as a great piece of art. You can't apply that context to to yourself. And the Mona Lisa undoubtedly is extremely important as a piece of artwork in the history of art. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you if it doesn't like set your loins on fire. Well, I haven't actually seen 2001. You you should see it because, you Mm. know, you're interested in cinema and it is a cinematic landmark. Yeah, but be prepared for two and a half hours of spaceships docking very slowly. <laughs> um, probes landing on things in real time. You know, it it it, all, it is all sort of like all of that stuff. All those sequences, they're sort of in real time, and real time is time. It takes you know a I mean? long time. It yeah. takes a long time. It doesn't engage me particularly. Uh, and I think it's interesting you mentioned the word context because I think. Uh, probably the context when it was first released at the height of the Cold War and the space race and all that stuff. But there's a different context to it now, uh, the increased awareness of AI and um, that sort of technical technological advance is actually it's quite important to the plot of 2001 yeah that sort of that evolution but oh, oh yeah I've spent 22 years trying to like 2001 A Space Odyssey and I'm kind of I'm done trying to like it now I think you've gi- <laughs> you've given it a better shot than most people would do <laughs> I have I have <laughs> and yeah I, I, I recognise it's brilliance but I can't, can't be bothered with it that's okay <laughs> that's fine <laughs> Thank you. 
So this week we're going to be discussing the Coen Brothers, uh, some would say masterpiece, Barton Fink, uh, from 1991. Uh, So from Mulholland Drive to Barton Fink, uh, the link is Nightmare Depictions of Hollywood. Anyway, as far as Barton Fink is concerned, it's your turn to do a synopsis. So you've got, it's uh, 116 minutes long, Uh, so you've got 116 seconds. Are you ready? Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. I haven't prepared... This, so I d- I'm afraid I can't remember character names, but I'm going to do my best. That's fine. We uh, we tend to wing it, don't we? All right. So three, two, one, go. So um, the film opens with Barton Fink, a New York playwright, um, standing watching the opening night um, of his show, um, his play that has opened on Broadway. Um, He's kind of nervously waiting in the wings to see how the play is going to be received. Wouldn't you know it? Standing ovation lauded wow my god my god he walks out onto the stage everyone loves it's so great he gets he gets taken for dinner with some schmoozy new york uh, theater types and it's great and he gets a phone call um and his agent is like um the this um um movie studio in hollywood want to put you on their payroll um and they want you to go down there and work for them and Barton Fink's like I don't really want to go because I feel like I'm really on a roll here with my work and he's clearly he's got these like idealistic views of what the future of the theatre could be he's an artist he wants to he's kind of involved in this new movement of the way we tell stories on stage but no 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 for the paycheck he's going to go down to Hollywood over to the west coast from the east coast he's going to go over to the sun of Hollywood um, where he is put on the payroll of a movie studio and they tell him that they want him to work on a wrestling picture um from that point he goes to the weird hotel earl um which is an incredible thing in and of itself and he basically has his room at the hotel and he is trying to write this wrestling picture he can't do it he can't do it he's really struggling um he goes back to them and they say well you need to um, get in touch with another writer and see how they do it um he does meet another writer and um basically gets no advice from him whatsoever he actually gets pushed into this kind of existential crisis of the fact that maybe the the girlfriend of this writer actually wrote his best work for him oh god it's terrible um so basically he's struggling to write this film um meanwhile he has a next door neighbor at the hotel john goodman um who and they just immediately have this this rapport with each other they have this lovely kind of buddy relationship where they kind of sit together in the room and talk about stuff or well John Goodman tries to talk about himself um, but despite his ideas about wanting to write theatre for the common man Barton Fink just will not listen to him he shuts him down Mm. time and time again because he's so self-important and absorbed in his own ideas of what he ought to be doing and that he isn't actually listening to people and then Barton Fink has a one night stand with the girlfriend of the writer um, and Mm. then wakes up in the morning to find her dead in the bed next to him and he's like fuck freaks out gets charlie i think he's called charlie gets john goodman round from next door john goodman disposes of the body and helps him and covers it all up and then the police are onto him these two detectives turn up and are asking him questions john goodman is like here's this box it's got my things in it keep hold of it mm-hmm. 
Um, at which point, oh, and the police detectives are like, by the way, his name is not Charlie. He's this murderer. He's this awful murderer um, who cuts people's heads off. And so Barton thinks like, oh, head in a box on the desk and mm. is inspired to write what he then thinks is his masterpiece which he then takes to the movie producer and the movie producer is like, this is shit. I don't like it. The hotel burns down and Barton Fink at the end is basically still trapped under contract to write movies. And that's the end of the film. Is it? Is that how it ends? What was the um, end of the film? I mean, that's sort of how the synopsis has to end. <laughs> yeah. That was um, three minutes and 51 seconds. That, that was almost almost two minutes over. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But do you know what I've been thinking about? How my synopses are always woefully short and lacking in detail. So I was like, oh, sure. I probably ought to actually talk about some things. Do you remember the first first one of these we ever recorded um, that yeah. we've not released was for Titanic? And we started with, with um, me attempting a synopsis. And that just became the entire episode. <laughs> We basically did a synopsis for three hours for the for the entire runtime of the movie. We did we did talk for longer than the film. <laughs> uh, shall I do a little bit of housekeeping? I would love some housekeeping, please. Yeah. So Barton Fink uh, was released on May the eighteenth, nineteen ninety one. It had its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. Written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. This was their fourth film, following Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, and Miller's Crossing. The cinematography is provided by Roger Deakins, who I'm a massive fan of. Mm. Um, I'm sure everybody listening will have seen some of Roger Deakins' work, at, at least. Uh, this was his first time working with the Coens. Uh, he's worked with them a further ten times. Uh, yeah, so he's worked with them on all of their subsequent movies, apart from Burn After Reading, Inside Lewin Davis, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and The Tragedy of Macbeth, mm. um, which was... Uh, just uh, Joel Cohen, I think, did Macbeth. Uh, his other films include The Shawshank Redemption, Ron Howard's A Beautiful Mind, which we name-checked last week briefly. Um, also, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, um, oh. which is a stunning film to yeah, look at. It's so, the, so those would be Those would be really... Those are all great examples of some of his other work. Uh, he has been nominated 11 times for Oscars. He finally won for Blade Runner 2049. Did he win um, for that? Gosh, wow. He did win for that, yeah. And then he won his second Oscar uh, two years later for the First World War drama in 1917, mm. which I don't know if you saw that. It's terrific. I, I haven't seen it, but I, well, uh, from what I've seen of the footage from it, it looks unbelievable. It looks so oh, stunning. It really is. It's a fantastic piece of work. The credited editor is uh, somebody called Roderick Janes. Um, Roderick Janes is a pseudonym for Joel and Ethan Cohen. They edit their own movies. Um, <laughs> That's to get around um, stuff to do with unions, isn't it? Oh, almost certainly. Now, the the production team, so the sort of production designer, the art director, set decorator, the costume designer, they're sort of, they have worked together on a lot of different things between them. A lot of them have worked with the Coens on subsequent things. We've got production designer, uh, Dennis Gostner, who, in addition to his work with the Coen brothers, which is extensive, has worked on uh, Road to Perdition, The Truman Show, uh, Waterworld, Skyfall, Blade Runner 2049, uh, and 1917. So those last three credits mm. uh, were with the cinematographer uh, Roger Deakins. He's had seven Oscar nominations. He won one as a set decorator on Bugsy. Oh! The art director, well, is a team of art directors. So we've got Robert L. Goldstein and Leslie McDonald. So Goldstein worked on Mrs. Doubtfire, um, Showgirls, which I'm sure is one of your favourites. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I have so many thoughts on Showgirls. We must cover it at some point. <laughs> oh my god, that episode! Yeah, right. Yeah, let's let's do, let's yeah let's make a pact to cover Showgirls one day. Uh, he was also art director on Training Day, which is an interesting job. That's a lot of location sh- uh, shoots mm. on that, and I think he was set. I think he was credited as set designer on it because it, but it's a lot of location shoots. Oh, interesting. So, okay. Leslie McDonald uh, has worked a lot more with the Coen Brothers, so she worked with them on uh, Miller's Crossing and their subsequent movie uh, Hudsucker Proxy. Um, she also worked with Dennis Gosner on Bugsy, and she's worked with uh, Spielberg on Minority Report, and she was on Forrest Gump as well. Uh, set decorator Nancy Haig. Uh, she's had nine Oscar nominations. She shared the uh, Oscar with Dennis Gosner for Bugsy. Um, and she also worked with him on Road to Perdition and Forrest Gump and The Truman Show. Uh, the costume designer is Richard Hornung. He received an Oscar nomination for this. Uh, he also worked on uh, Grifters. Which one's Grifters? Grifters is Angelica Houston, John Cusack and Annette Benning. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I believe it's terrific. It's uh, Stephen Frears directed it. The film was made for a budget of $9 million and it took at the box office $6.2 million. So as I say, they were on a bit of a a bit of a losing streak commercially, but it garnered uh, three Oscar nominations for uh, sporting actor for Michael Lerner, who plays uh, the sort of studio head. Mm. It also received Oscar nominations for the art deck slash set deck and the costume design, as I mentioned. One of the awards point of interest, it was the first film uh, to win the three top awards at the Cannes Film Festival. So it won the Palme d'Or, um, which is best film. Uh, it also won best actor for John Turturro and best director for Ethan Cohen. Uh, just rounding out the housekeeping we've got the cast we've got John Turturro plays Barton Fink uh, John Goodman as Charlie Meadows slash Carl Madman Munt <laughs> Judy Davis as Audrey Taylor Michael Lerner as Jack Lipnick uh, John Mahoney uh, wonderful John Mahoney who we're both fans of from Frasier um, <laughs> he's just so good he plays WP Mayhew uh, the uh, the drunken writer we've got Tony Schalhaub as Ben Geisler John Polito as Lou Breeze uh, Steve Buscemi as Chet uh, Richard Portnow as uh, Detective Mastrianati uh, Christopher Murney as Detective Deutsch and Megan Fay as Poppy Carnahan I can't remember which character Poppy Carnahan is I think she's uh, she's like the secretary isn't she so oh, is she yeah I, I've, I've included it because uh, she was quite sort of eye-catching in the brief appearances that that she had yeah yeah well and her connection to the typewriter yes well that's all very interesting yeah very interesting uh, so yeah as i say they were on a bit of a bit of a losing streak so their first two features had done all right yeah so yeah blood, blood simple um which was their first feature took uh, 2.7 million off a 1.5 million budget so it was like okay yeah go, go make another one uh, so then they made raising arizona which is bonkers screwball comedy with uh, nicholas Cage, and that was actually that was a huge hit that made 29.2 million off five and a half million budget wow but then they made miller's crossing after that which uh it's a sort of gangster drama with mm. gabriel byrne i don't know if you've seen it i haven't seen it i'd really like to see it and that was made for somewhere between 10 and 14 million dollars and it only took at the box office five million god um so yeah that that lost quite a bit but that didn't didn't deter them so as i say this ooh, just shy of three million they lost so mm. uh, yeah nine million budget and a 6.2 million at the box office and then after this they made hudsucker proxy uh, which again uh, lost money but Hudsucker Proxy is one of my absolute favourites. I've not seen it. Oh, it's um, it's, it's one of their dafter movies. It's a sort of very family-friendly screwball comedy. And yeah, that that was made for a, a huge budget of twenty-five million and only took eleven million. They were losing quite quite consistently, and I think they wouldn't actually make money on a film until their film after the Hudsucker Proxy, which was Fargo. 
Right. And um, yeah, since Fargo, I think everything has made made money apart from the man who wasn't there lost mm. uh, lost a bit of money. Which is interesting because um, w- the man who wasn't there was the film that lost out to Mulholland Drive at, at Cannes. Uh, well, no, they they shared they shared best director. They shared best director, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ethan Cohen and uh, David Lynch. Well, I don't know why why do you why do you think this lost money? I think that's the sort of question that I want to pose now and. We'll see if we can answer it by the time we by the time we're done chatting about it. Honestly, I have no idea. Barton Fink, if it came out now, would do unbelievably well because it was the Coens. But I don't think I can't imagine that the Coen brothers had enough of a following by that point to guarantee a box office. And actually, when you look at it, I can imagine that studios probably didn't really know what to do with it because, as with most mm-hmm. of the Coen brothers' work, it's sort of. Def- categorization like what is Barton Fink is it a comedy is it a noir is it a psychological thriller is it like what is it how do you sell it um, maybe that's why. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a it's a tough it's a tough sell. It's a wonderful film. Uh, yeah, did did you enjoy it? I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think I think it's a terrific piece of work, but I don't know how I would sell it to somebody. Yeah, well, whereas now a Coen Brothers film that's a bit weird, you can go, oh well, it's a Coen Brothers film, and that sort of does quite a lot of the work for you because the weirdness is Coen Brothers weirdness. <laughs> so it's like, ah, oh, yeah, that's <laughs> kind of a catch-all. What's your history with the Coen Brothers in general? It's mostly just thinking Fargo's amazing. Fargo is one of the first proper films that I saw and loved and recognised as like a properly good film and being like, wow. You know, rather than like, I mean, I saw it way younger than I probably ought to have done. Thanks, mum and dad, for being quite loose with that. <laughs> with how they policed what we were watching as kids. I think I taped it off the telly. I haven't sought out their films in the way that a proper fan of the Coen brothers would do. There's a lot of their films yeah. that I've not seen. Um, I've never made it all the way through The Big Lebowski. I have fallen asleep <sighs> every single time. That doesn't mean it isn't a good film. Um, it just means that I always try and watch it at the wrong moment. It's a bit, it's a bit divisive, that one, I think. Yeah. I mean, No Country for Old Men, I think it's fantastic, but it won't break my yeah. heart if I never see it again. Sure. I actively really dislike Hail Caesar. Um, yeah, for me, Hail Caesar had sort of moments of inspiration and genius. Yes. And- a whole lot of fluff which made it even more frustrating because i was like why didn't you you couldn't see what gold you had here yeah i'm not i'm not like a super fan but Mm -hmm. i'm like yeah okay what about you well you had a box set ed (laughs) well yes uh no i i I would consider myself a coen brothers fan that doesn't mean that i like all of their movies i think i think the darker and weirder they are the more i'm into it Yes. Um, the sort of generally the the lighter and frothier they are, the less interested I am. So I I, I can't be doing with their um their, their version of the Lady Killers. Uh, mm. Just doesn't interest me. No. Um, I I love the original Lady Killers. I don't uh, see. I don't know why they made it to be honest. But then stuff like Inside Lewin Davis, I really really like. Mm-hmm. And um, True Grit, I think is terrific. True Grit is great. Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Um, Inside yeah. Lewin Davis left me a bit cold actually. I I wasn't. You know. I I kind of didn't sure. give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's um, it's actually I think Inside Lewin Davis is a really interesting comparison with Barton Fink because mm. I think they both have these protagonists who are fundamentally unlikable, really, Mm. um, and who are their own worst enemy. Quite often, the Coens 
approach to writing a screenplay seems to be take a character, put that character in an awful situation, and then make that situation worse <laughs> and worse and worse, which is what happens um, here in Barton Fink is the same as what happens in Inside Lewin Davis. Mm. Yeah, I, they, they, uh, they take the screenwriter's uh, old adage of be cruel to your characters as far as they can. Yeah, um, yeah. Often. It's something I appreciate because it, in order to do that, you have to have a really good, fully developed character before you've got anything else. And for me, that is the core of quality screenwriting or, or playwriting. There's kind of, it's all very well and good coming up with a good premise or a good plot. But if you've not got a decent character, it doesn't give a fuck where they are. <laughs> It doesn't matter if they're in space or if they're in the French Foreign Legion or if they're a fucking polar bear. It doesn't matter, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> what do you, what's this film about to you? Um, <laughs> that's oh, it's all in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? There's an awful lot of um, different competing themes in here. So there's yeah all stuff about. Um, High art versus low art. There's stuff about... uh, There's all sorts of um, biblical allusions Mm. in there. There's also the the Second World War sort of looms large. And I know it's been taken as as an allegory um, for the rise of of Nazism Mm -hmm. and and, uh, fascists in Italy as well, which I think there's a lot to that as well. For me, however... Um, watching it, uh, yeah, watching it on on these two occasions, and I don't know what it says about me and where I am in my life, um, but I I took it as a story of a man who just won't stop banging his head against the wall. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I know what like, you mean. He he's he's got these ideas of himself and his place in the world and what he wants to do and he is sort of refusing to he's refusing to accept the things that he has to do um just to sort of get by in life mm. um and he's he sort of makes um, he makes a horrible situation for himself and then just sort of sits in it because he thinks that you have to to do good work to do good art and yeah he won't just he won't stop banging his head against the wall well we'll come on to the end of the film soon um because yeah I, I i don't know quite how because it's it's an ambiguous end i think it's fair to say uh yeah what, what do you what do you think it's about what's it what's it about to you um, how do you behold this i mean <laughs> um i think that this is just a proof that this film with all its ambiguities a lot like mulholland drive um so much of your personal baggage goes into how you interpret the film to me it's about the creative process and it is a comment on the creative process bearing in mind i was delighted to read after i watched it i completely cut myself off from anything about the film until I'd seen it Um, and then I read that Barton Fink um, was written as a way of dealing with writer's block while they were writing Miller's Crossing so obviously the film is about a writer who can't write because they were in effect writers who couldn't write what I think is lovely about that and it just speaks volumes about them as creatives is that they don't look they didn't look at it as creative block for Miller's Crossing, it was like, oh, no, what do we need to do to flush out this creative block? Rather than staying stationary, we need to get creativity flowing in a different direction. And I think that's just a really yeah. lovely lesson to anyone who's trying to write, um, actually, is like, yeah. if you're stuck on something, try something else. So obviously it's about it's about writer's block, but I think it's also about, at the heart of it is a character who keeps telling everybody how desperately he wants to make work for and about the common man, who could not be further out of touch with the common man 
if he tried mm-hmm. um and it's that tie it's that maybe it's a comment on the fact that if you are attempting any kind of creative endeavor you just by necessity have to separate yourself slightly because otherwise you can't you can't mm. look at something but you know first of all he is going on about the common man um and how the theater is going to be his way of telling the stories of the common man um and he's really looking down on the massively populist form of cinema he he is really like disdainful of movie making even though mm. that is far more in touch with the common man than than the New York theatre elite is, you know, Broadway. Yeah. Well, a hundred years before this is set, the theatre would have been for the common man, but you get that shot at the start of the movie Mm. where you see the success of his play and it's all the people in their suits standing up and applauding and cheering and shouting his name. This is his audience. It's not the common man at all. No, No, at all. (laughs) And then he is um, in this restaurant where a little bell is ringing because he's got a telegram and it's all people in posh suits and it's so... it It is the cultural elite it is the people who could afford to go to the theater during i mean let's not forget so the film is set in 1941 during the film the attack on pearl harbor takes place Mm -hmm. but prior to this you've had um 11 years of um wall street crash in 29 um leading into the great depression which lasted and you've also got completely coincidentally nothing to do with the great depression you've got the dust bowl in america which is a catastrophic natural disaster that lasted a decade that actually pushed a lot of people out to the coast um, to escape the Dust Bowl in America, which is there is a boom in immigrants coming to Hollywood to find work and lo and behold, there's the Hollywood system. And, you know, despite the unbelievable poverty um, that most Americans were experiencing, there was a massive boom in people going to the cinema because it was cheap to go and it was a an escapism. You know, you are starving and can't get work and um, yeah. are suffering potentially from like a kind of dust form of pneumonia and there's Busby Berkeley musicals. Escapism, they want big big flashy musicals, they want horror, universal horror pictures, they want gangster movies, all of this stuff to escape from the situation that they find themselves in. So, and there's Barton Fink wanting to tell the story of the common man. Well, first of all, the common man doesn't to see that. (laughs) And also, he's not listening. Yeah, well, he's he's got this um, very sort of patronising idea that the stories of the common man are about pain and suffering. That... It, that's that's what it's all about. Um, um, talking a few episodes ago about the film Scrapper. Yes, yeah. Which, uh, when you hear the director interviewed about her approach to it, she talks about how like you see so many um, British movies that depict the working class in such a sort of miserable kind of way, sort of poverty porn. Mm. Um, and I think in this country there's a real backlash against that now. Mm. Yeah, Scrapper was an absolute antidote to that because uh, she wanted to make a film about working class people that was bright and upbeat mm. and positive and yes dealt with some dealt with some tragedy and some tough themes but dealt with it in a way that wasn't going to leave people feeling depressed yeah because that's 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 not what people's lives are um, but Barton Fink has this idea that that's what it is and he needs to be in touch with that pain and that suffering to understand it and tell those stories. But he won't just listen to somebody who has stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's tell. got no interest in it at all. Does Barton have a story to tell? Does Barton? Yeah. Well, I, I suppose I do. I believe that in the sense that I think everyone's got a story to tell. I think that he 
isn't interested in telling his own story and maybe part of the process he has to go through is to learn how to put his own experience into his work. Can I tell you what my theory is? Because this will colour the rest of our conversation. Okay. I don't think that anything that happens in the hotel actually happens. And I think Charlie and the detectives are figments of his imagination how interesting because you never see them outside of the hotel no that's true his meetings with the studio execs and all of that kind of stuff i do think that actually happens out in the real world and then i think once he's inside the hotel all of that is part of his creative Mm. battle yeah so when he has the one night stand with um with audrey that's entirely a fantasy and that whole conversation they have about how she writes mayhew's work yes that's entirely a fantasy in his head because, yeah, okay, okay. And um, yeah, I like this. I really like this. I don't know if you do this, Ed, but whenever when I mm. watch a film for the first time that I know I'm going to need to talk about with you on the podcast, I'm always like, yeah. like laser eyes, like, <laughs> look at it! In a way that I probably don't do with other films. I, I took away quite a simplistic reading of it which is that it is just straightforwardly to do with the creative process and all of this stuff Mm -hmm. that happens because that's the way I can make sense of it and that's how I can make sense of the way that he behaves out in the rest of the world because actually if he'd killed someone and the chap in the room next to him had disposed of the body and then turned out to be a murderer and then all of this stuff had happened I just don't it just didn't quite marry up for me with then how he behaves out in the real world. It felt like mm. that was him going through a kind of creative like brain dump. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that then leads him <laughs> to be able to write this script. And then actually what the film's about is how <laughs> the Hollywood system is like its own little ecosystem and you've got to be able to work mm-hmm. within it and find your place within it or you're not going to succeed in it. And actually no one gives yeah. a fuck about your talent. Well, let's chat about the Hollywood system a little bit briefly. I know we covered it a little yeah. bit when we talked about Frankenstein. When, when you say the Hollywood system, what, what is it that you mean? My understanding is that there is kind of, there are three phases of Hollywood. Some could argue mm-hmm. for. There is the pre-code from the very, very first moving images uh, through to talkies coming in. Mm-hmm in 1927 so that's the kind of silent era then you've got what follows which is known as the kind of golden era of Hollywood so that is kind of right from through the 1930s and it kind of it starts to die out but really it's sort of death comes in the 60s um, and then mm-hmm. you have what's called new Hollywood which is what kind of Bonnie and Clyde is the kind of poster child for the yeah. start of new Hollywood and the golden age of Hollywood is largely defined by the studio system what's very interesting is that um, the film industry originally started in New York as you would imagine it would and the reason there was this kind of migration over to the west coast and California is to do with patents so it's oh interesting did you know about this no I didn't know it's because so Thomas Edison he of the light bulb Mm. basically he was really shit hot on patenting stuff so basically all of the technology required to make a motion picture Mm. edison had a patent on the technology which meant that he in new york controlled filmmaking and so the migration over to the west coast and to hollywood was driven by people who didn't want to have to pay the licensing fees to use the technology so they escaped over and they chose california because the weather was generally really good all year round which meant that they could make movies all year round so um, 90% of Hollywood were um, immigrants. So they were um, largely Eastern European immigrants who'd come over, went over to the West Coast, set up studios. Um, so you had 
what's known as the Big Five, which were Paramount, mm. RKO, MGM, 20th Century Fox, and Warner Brothers. So those were the Big sure. Five Hollywood studios. Um, and you had also what's called the Small Three, who were Universal, Columbia, and United Artists. And United Artists were created by artists, as the name suggests, mm-hmm. that was created by Douglas Fairbanks, who's kind of... Douglas Fairbanks was sort of the Tom Cruise. Uh, Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin. They, they founded oh. United Artists and that the whole point of that was it was a studio run by the artists. Under the studio system, artists were contracted. So you basically, you would... Like getting a job nowadays where you work for one employer, you're Mm. under contract and you get a salary and then you just do the work that's required for that salary. And that's what it was like for artists. Um, So you would be, you know, tied to, say, MGM. You would have a contract where you got paid a salary and you had to do a certain amount of work. So if you were an actor, maybe you had to do five pictures a year or something like that under the studio system. And the, the change to new Hollywood, as it were, basically was the decline of the studio system where the power was much more in the hands of directors and artists Mm -hmm. rather than so the world that Barton Fink is coming into is one where you are under contract as a writer you write the project that is given to you by the studio Mm -hmm. exec and it is all it's very capitalist it's all about making money Mm -hmm. and actually I would say that nowadays with streaming we are tipping back much more towards what it was like having a studio system. Yeah, I've often considered we're in a sort of more of a, a sort of neo studio system. Like with with the rise of streaming giants like um, Amazon and Netflix, but also with the sort of the MCU yes! stuff. Like Disney is a huge studio that just has everything. Yeah, and it's to do with quantity, not quality. It is about making sure that you know bums are on seats. Basically, all of that is to say that the the world that Barton Fink is coming into is one where they don't give a fuck about your kind of artistic you know inspiration they want you to be able to churn out formula um because the formula is a massive part of what gets people's bums on seats exactly like with um the Coen brothers they didn't get bums on seats because their films Mm -hmm. lack definition um yeah. they couldn't be categorized um and yeah. you know that was really important especially at a time when it was so uh, everyone was so poor mm. so yeah the the system that he's going into is regimented capitalist it's a sort of movie factory isn't it exactly just, they churn it out and churn it out and churn it out and churn it out which is the landscape we've got now so actually that was something yeah. i didn't really expect to see in barton think but i looked at it and i was like oh like the the implication um i don't know if you read it the same way but the implication is they some of this stuff they actively don't want to be any good like actually uh the as as patronizing as Barton Fink is to the common man and the studio in the movie is also quite patronising oh god yeah because it's all about this is what people want you know they, they want the wrestling picture they want action they want you know they don't They don't want a man wrestling with himself um, <laughs> I love that line it's so good there are so many great lines it's in this movie just, yeah it's, it's absolutely <laughs> great one of the other things I wanted to chat about briefly as well one of the other very important parts of the context to it is we've touched on it uh, is the, the backdrop of the second world war yeah and Jews with in the Hollywood system mm. is a really important theme. So, so the the, the studio head uh, is a, is a Jewish character, but he's quite interesting because he very frequently uses an anti-Semitic slur. And then, obviously, uh, Barton is Jewish as well. You've got that that moment uh, that people picked up on as being sort of partly allegorical mm. of the rise of fashion. And I think actually, Madman Muntz, uh, mm. what turns out to be his name, the fact that that's a, he's got a German name, a German name is, I think, 
quite pointed. But also the two detectives who come and investigate. One of them's got an Italian name. One of them's got a German name. Um, and one of the first things they say to uh, say to Barton is Fink. That's a Jewish name, huh? And they just they treat him with such contempt which is quite interesting it is interesting and the fact that he is completely contained in this tiny room struggling with these Mm. personal demons and then he goes out to celebrate when he finally manages to make his film he goes out dancing and pearl harbor has just happened and he's there with sailors and gis and he's completely oblivious of the common man he has no idea nobody cares yeah. Nobody cares about his great artistic triumph yeah. of finally finishing a thing. <laughs> I know. And why should they? He's he he is like my artistic endeavor is so much more important than yeah. this global disaster <laughs> that we're in the middle. Yes, this movie screams into someone and says, I'm a writer <laughs> <laughs> But I think as well, I I think that's the Coens as creatives taking mm. the piss out of themselves, which is oh, such 100%. an endearing quality in the film. It's like yeah. you know that it's a mm. film about writer's block written by writers with writer's block. It's totally mm-hmm. about themselves and their own... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they're completely satirising themselves in, in the character of Barton Fink. I'm sure they are. Yeah, they must um, be. Actually, not long after this, we'd have... So after the Second World War, we'd have McCarthy and the Hollywood Blacklist yes. um, come in, which, yes, was it was a purge of communists, but actually it's been widely taken to be a, a purge of Jews as well yeah. from the Hollywood system. Yeah. Um, and actually, it was a very common practice amongst people below the executive levels in the studio um, for, for Jewish people to change their names. Yes. Um, so I've got I've got a little list of uh, some of the people who, oh, interesting. who changed their names. So yeah, just, just a couple of them. So Tony Curtis, he was Jewish. He was actually called Bernard Schwartz. Lauren Bacall was Betty Joan Persky. Kirk Douglas is Issa Danielovich Dembski. Mm. Um, Edward G. Robinson is Emmanuel Goldenberg. So yeah, they, it was very, very common practice for people who'd become huge stars to change their name um, from a Jewish name uh, to, I guess, uh, anglicised name. Yeah. Yeah, which I think it's, it's just an interesting backdrop for this film to take place against. And I think it's interesting that it's the studio executive who, amongst all of the Jewish characters, is the one who um, repeatedly uses mm-hmm. the anti-Semitic slur. That's really interesting. I hadn't picked up on that at all. And I know it's been taken, the fact that, that Barton won't listen as it, as it is screamed into his face towards the end because you don't listen. And I know that's been taken as a commentary on uh, liberal left-wing intelligentsia artists ignoring the rise of fascism in Europe, which I think there's almost certainly something to that. God, yeah. I absolutely agree with that reading. I actually think it's a really good companion piece to Mulholland Drive because mm. I think it's a film that is so littered with references, allegory. It's it's so thick with it. You can only benefit by watching it again and again and again and again. 99.99999% of the stuff that I then read about afterwards, I hadn't even picked up on. Um, I had my initial reading, but then there's all this stuff, uh, uh, all this stuff I was reading, even just on the Wikipedia page, let alone other criticism on it. And I'm boggled by how much stuff there is on this. And, you know, clearly the Coens are massively cine literate. They really know their shit to be able to layer all of this through and it not be like getting banged on the head with a frying pan you know yeah the uh i think their first responsibility is to entertain yes and that's that's something that that they're aware of i think that was something that um uh, that brecht used to used to bang on about yes he had all of these political messages in his plays that he wanted to put out into the world but actually he was acutely aware that his first responsibility as a playwright is to entertain the audience yes um and i think the cohen's have got a similar sensibility 
for saying, layer all of this stuff in. But they realised that if they're not entertaining people, who's going to be paying attention? I mean, it's such such a well observed character. It's such yeah. a such a rich character. Such a such a cruel depiction as well. Yeah. Of 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 a writer that I can't imagine that they would have based it really on anybody any one person no yeah yeah (laughs) no i mean um yeah so yeah i think i think so much of that has to come from from self-reflection how do you find him as a protagonist like are you happy for his to be the eyes that we see this world through yes i am it's interesting i think we'll we'll talk about this again later when we talk about saltburn because on the one hand he's a, a fundamentally unlikable protagonist. He's he's obnoxious. He is so self-absorbed and self-aggrandizing and patronizing uh, to um, I can't, I can't, Charlie, isn't it? Mm. Uh, John Goodman character um, towards Charlie when he comes over. You know, he, just these little throwaway comments about oh he sits he sits there on the bed and he goes ah oh, I envy you Charlie. You know I envy you, you the the uh, the routine. The always knowing what you've got to do. Ah, oh, me, I just it's my job to sit and drag these things out from inside. The life of the mind, the life of the mind. He goes on about, which comes back um, in a big way at the end. Comes back in a big way, along with Heil Hitler, oh, which talk about well talk about your World War Two stuff. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Barton Barton is he is an off-putting protagonist, and I I do think that might be one of the reasons that it struggled to find an audience. Like there's sort of that word of mouth element. I think a lot of people have gone and go, mm, I don't like him. Mm. Um, for me, I am happy to see the world through this character's eyes. I don't have to like my protagonist so long as I understand who he is and what he wants. Mm. And what does Barton think want? He thinks that he wants to create great work. What he, what he wants is a pat on the head. He wants to be respected. He wants people to tell him how wonderful he is. He wants he wants to bashfully um, walk out onto the stage to a standing ovation. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's interesting an interesting um interesting place to 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 put a protagonist to start him off actually with everything that he wants mm. and then to take it away from him yeah I think that's a really interesting narrative gambit yeah um, I find it it's an interesting comparison with uh, uh, Betty from Mulholland Drive because mm. she arrives in Los Angeles with these grand dreams stars in her eyes she so desperately wants to be in the movies mm. and she wants to be a star um, whereas Barton arrives in Los Angeles, having achieved actually mm. the thing that he wants to achieve, he's yeah. attained that goal. I mean, he doesn't really know what to do next. Yeah, but he knows that he doesn't want to be there, and he doesn't want to be in the movies. Yeah, yeah, because it is seen. It's seen as a, a step down artistically. He wants that immediate rush of adrenaline that you get from mm. hearing applause. But mm. if you have written a movie, you don't ever get to see the audience. Well, you might a couple of times, maybe. His, and also you write the thing, your work is done. It's given to the studio. Mm. They make the picture and it goes on and mm. you, and that's it. it. It will get watched, but you don't get to really kind of, no one's going to come and pat you on the back. Whereas the theatre, you walk out on stage and take a bow in front of people, you know? Well, yeah. And in, in the movies... Even now, but certainly back then, in the movies, the audience wouldn't ever know your name if you were the writer. If you were credited as the writer, you were lucky. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the audience wouldn't know your name. Whereas in the theatre, uh, the writer is king. As yeah. as the studio head says to Barton, no, the writer's king here. Um, no. It's really, really not. 
No, he was king. He was king of New York. Um, he was king of Broadway. Exactly like you say. He's reached the he's reached that the top of that system in New York. And when he go, it's like it's like having a total change of career and suddenly having to go in at the bottom again. But yeah. getting totally love bombed <laughs> by the studios mm. trying to butter him up, treating him in that way that makes him feel like he's special in some way, but not having any patience for him to not do it their way. You know, Barton's idea. He's got this sort of romantic idea of the 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 suffering artist and that good work can only be produced through suffering and pain and uh, by yeah putting yourself through such an ordeal um uh, discuss it's a really difficult one because i think that the that idea of the suffering artist is very pervasive it's often okay and i'm speaking as a writer myself it, it, and and i felt it a lot when i was an actor like people have an idea of what you must be like if you're the type of person who would be an actor and it's one of mm. like oh you must love the limelight or oh, you're a bit of a show off or oh, you're a this you're a that <clears throat> which is uh, absolute bullshit <laughs> yeah it's not i will not say the case, really. not the case and i think there is this idea of the tortured artist which is a kind of it's a trope and i think that it's very difficult to distinguish sometimes where the actual process of creating something and how difficult that is where that crosses the line into playing a part of the tortured artist yes like what barton fink is going through as a person like as a in terms of the creative process i totally understood what that was about i got Mm -hmm. that and this thing i mean i have i mean god not even remotely to any kind of extent i've not been loved or bombed by film producers but i have had the experience of writing for the theater and then uh, having an interest shown by TV people and having to try and make that transition into a totally different world and navigate the way it works differently. And it's really confusing and really baffling. I really recognise that thing of the producer like love bombing Barton Fink and it feeling totally weird and then for it suddenly to be like, oh yeah, no, but no one gives a fuck about you or what you have to say. We told you that it was totally up to you, but what we actually want you to do is this. It's like, oh, okay. I mean, we don't know that much about what what the play that Barton Fink has written is, do we? It's called there's something to do with the choir and it's something to do with fish yeah <laughs> are there fish it's, involved uh, it's it's the theater of for and about the common man fishes and choirs <laughs> yeah fishes and choirs yeah that he's, he's got he's got these pretensions to be arthur miller i find it really funny that when he sits down to try and write his wrestling picture when he gets to hollywood yeah. the only thing he writes is about how you can tell that there's a fishmonger nearby and it's like well yes. that was from his play <laughs> so really he's had one good idea <laughs> Yeah. And he doesn't yeah. know how to move past that success <laughs> and past that idea. And God, I think all of us know what that's like. I love that bit where he opens the Bible and and, and oh. that's that's the opening of Genesis <laughs> is, is the opening of his screenplay about the uh, the sound of the, the the fish sellers can be heard. And what is it? It's something like you can't hear traffic, but you will be able to soon. It's like, I love it. Yeah, it's that's so right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love, I love, I love those... Uh, plays of around that kind of time you read like any streetcar named desire or something yeah. like that the stage directions and the descriptions are so ridiculous they go They're on so involved. for pages and pages so and pages they do and no, none of that is like what you will necessarily see they're just sort of in that case it's Tennessee Williams mm. sort of conjuring an image for the directors and the designer mm. and <laughs> <laughs> it is so funny I think that Barton Fink is suffering mm-hmm. but that suffering is separate 
separate from the general concept of the suffering artist. As you say, sort of playing the part of the suffering artist, because I don't think actually he's doing any of the suffering involved in creating because he's not creating anything. Yes. He's not actually, he's not exposing himself at all. No, he's not. Um, And he's actually, he's got no interest in exposing himself because he doesn't want to write about himself. He doesn't want to write his story. He wants to write about this nebulous common man, sort of only exists in his head. He's He is a mosquito who wants to latch onto the common man, pump it for material and then put that onto the stage. Well, no, he, I mean, in the same way that people have a sort of romanticised idea about what a writer's like, a suffering artist, he's got this romanticised idea about what the common man is that he wants to write about. He wants to perpetuate a stereotype about a group of people he's utterly unconnected to in the same way that maybe people look at artists and think that they behave a certain way and it's much more it's much easier to perpetuate that that stereotype than it is to actually accept that humans contain multitudes (laughs) much like the hollywood system it wants formula it wants a regimented formula for what things look like what the world looks like and for barton fink the common man looks like a choir of fishmongers i don't i can't remember what the (laughs) i can't can't, can't can't remember either (laughs) But yeah, this, the suffering that he goes through is all of his own making. Like he gets there, he has the meeting with the head of the studio who offers to put him up in a real plush hotel. And he's like, no, I need to be in touch with, with the common man. I need to be in touch with suffering and pain. So he stays at this absolute shithole. I know. <laughs> yeah, he has the romantic notion of the common man. He's got the romantic notion of the suffering artist that he aspires to be without actually doing any of the creating required Mm. For the artist part of that, yeah, exactly. so really, he's just he's just suffering, you know. But Barton mm. Fink gets um, covered in mosquito bites and turns up to all his meetings with mosquito bites. And everyone's like, "Where are you getting bitten by mosquitoes?" And he says, "We're in a desert. Mosquitoes live a swamp." But and that which that sort of led into my feeling that the hotel is a kind of construct of Barton Fink's mind. He's in this quagmire, mm. getting bitten by mosquitoes. He's in this kind of festering, dank, rotting. Yeah wet awful kind of swampland that he's created for himself in the middle of this desert where the sun always shines and everyone else is cracking on with it and sitting by their nice pools what phenomenal production design yeah i i love everything about the hotel i want to stay in it from (laughs) i don't know i wouldn't go that far (laughs) but from from our very first introduction to it um when he goes in there and meets Chet, the bellboy, or the uh, reception guy, yeah, played by Steve Buscemi, who just he's he's, magical. he's brilliant, and like like so so many of the characters in this play, the the screenplay is so is so rapid fire. Everything he says is so quick, so quick, so quick, so quick. He introduces himself as Chet like four or five times <laughs> before before passing a, a, just a piece of paper across the desk to Barton that just says the word Chet. It's so good. <laughs> it's, it's so beautiful. It's just a beautiful piece of, of comic writing. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, it's yeah. The hotel, I mean, one of the other things that made me think, oh, maybe this isn't really happening. It's this kind of the implied presence of all of these other inhabitants of this hotel mm. with the shoes outside the doors, like little sort of sacrificial offerings to the hotel. But you never see see anyone else you only see charlie um and chet so i that kind of made me feel like there's something going on at this hotel that's not quite right and the way that the wallpaper is coming off the walls 
Charles. Yeah. It's gruesome. Where is the, where does the heat come from? Does the heat come from Charlie or does the heat come from the hotel? Or is it all just in Barton's mind? It could be all sorts of things. It's the heat of the pressure um, of what he is expected to achieve in this room. You know, because there's also mm-hmm. this idea that, you know, he can only sit with his typewriter and stare at this wallpaper that is coming off the wall mm-hmm. and is all slimy and sickly. It's like, but it's like, well, no, he's the way it peels and just leaves this goo. Oh, it's yeah. awful. It's like, well, it's like the hotel never dries out. It's always wet. It's like, yeah. it's like a towel in your bathroom that never entirely yeah. dries out and is always kind of cold and wet. But yet it's also, it, the hotel is so hot. Mm. They're all so sweaty all the time. It kind of does dry out when Charlie goes away. Oh. Because Barton comes back and, and finds the detectives there having read his finished screenplay. Yeah. And they're dismissing it. And they sort of, they handcuff him to the bed and he's, oh, gets hot and he goes and Barton says Charlie's back it's hot it's hot Charlie's back oh my god I hadn't picked up on that at all yeah so the implication is that Charlie sort of brings Charlie is generating the heat like I've always I've always taken Charlie to be the devil or yeah sure some sort of demon yeah got that fantastic speech at the end oh. where he talks about how he he just he just wants to just wants to help people out he sees people putting themselves through something and he just wants to help him out, show him what suffering's really all about. Oh my god! I mean, <laughs> and and actually, that all works really. I, I I I can totally make sense of that because it's like Barton has to enter into some sort of pact with him in order to be able to write. Oh right, okay. Sorry, quick question: Is the implication that Charlie murders Audrey? Well, that's a good question. I think that's where I come down mm, on it. Mm. But at the same time, I wouldn't rule out Barton's. Yeah killed her I wouldn't rule out that the hotel itself has killed her <laughs> I wouldn't rule out that the mosquito killed she's her she's murdered and herself I also, she's you know <laughs> I also wouldn't rule out your theory that none of that has actually happened and it's all just in Barton's fractured blocked mind yeah I suppose Charlie maybe represents the pact that Barton has to make with the system in order to be successful in it but then no that doesn't quite work I'm not quite sure. I mean, to be honest, like, I'm all of this, I'm sort of working it out as we're sitting talking about it because I'm kind of, I got to the end of it and I was a bit like, wow, I don't know what that means at all. I loved it. (laughs) What do you think about Charlie as a character? It's, honestly, it's, it's such a fascinating performance. John Goodman is unbelievably good isn't he he's 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 really brilliant yeah he's so warm and friendly and genial and likable but at almost every moment there's something underneath him that he could just break button in half that first scene's a really uh, interesting introduction um to the character because i don't know if you noticed almost every line that charlie has he starts with either the word damn or hell oh really yeah it's repeatedly he every, almost every line he has starts with damn or hell uh, there are a couple that don't and there's i think one that starts with jesus oh which sort of leads me down this sort of road of he's a devil or whatever by the second you're convincing me that that's the case like <laughs> yeah for sure i don't know i'm i'm quite convinced by your theory though to be but fair. i think that, that i think that they can they can i don't coexist. think the two negate each other yeah, yeah I, I think, think so. that within charlie is a demon who appears to barton in this kind of sort of f- fantasy it's it's it, there's a contract between them each has something the other wants or does something for the other one Ch- oh god he's so wonderful john goodman he's so it's also <laughs> interesting that we never see inside his room and when barton goes to mm. charlie's room 
to ask for help when he finds Audrey dead. Mm-hmm. He's trying to get into Charlie's room and Charlie's like, no, 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 let's go to your room. And at first I was like, oh, has he got a woman in there? Is like, what, you know, what's going on in Charlie's room? But now that you've said that, I'm like, oh. does Charlie's room even exist? What is, is oh Charlie's room the gates of hell? <laughs> like, what is that? Uh, yeah, I've, I've, al- I've always taken the hotel itself as, as hell. Yeah. And Charlie is sort of, it's impossible to extract him yes. from that location, really. Um, he talks about you You come to my home <gasps> yeah. and complain about the noise. That speech is one of the best kind of, as a climax to a film, a piece of writing, a performance by an actor, just yeah. magical filmmaking, that sequence. I loved it so much. Well, at the same time, it's such a multifaceted performance that actually I could well believe, particularly in those moments, that Charlie's just a regular guy mm-hmm. who, yes, is a homicidal maniac, but he's been driven completely round the bend by the hotel. Yes. I could absolutely believe the hotel as a sort of demonic force in itself. Yeah, absolutely. But there's something, um, it's in his eyes though. He's, mm. he's got, John Goodman's got such bright, twinkly eyes. And in that mm. section where he sort of sits down in the burning room and he has that speech, his eyes go black. His eyes go totally yes. black like a shark. And it's so chilling. Mm. God, what is that all about when he breaks the bars open for him? There's so much to unpack. All right, so that, that first scene with, with John Goodman, with Charlie, it's like he makes a sort of series of decisions. So Barton has complained about the noise. So actually, the first thing you hear, you hear, you hear Charlie before you see him. You hear him laughing. What is he laughing at? Who knows? Um, God. <laughs> and then Barton rings down to complain about the noise. And the next thing, well, the next thing you hear is Charlie taking the call from reception. Yeah, yeah. And then he comes and bangs on the door and... Barton's kind of kind of kind of a bit a bit rude to him, a bit sort mm. of dismissive, and you can sort of see Charlie making decisions. Mm. Okay, I'm gonna fuck with this guy. Oh, I'm gonna actually I'm gonna go in to the room and offer him a drink. And then throughout that scene, Barton talks about being a struggling artist and the theatre of the common man and how oh I want to tell your stories. And Charlie's always like, Oh, stories, I could tell you stories, and Barton keeps interrupting him. And in those moments, you just see these flashes of absolute pure fury mm. underneath uh, Charlie's sort of genial demeanour. Mm. It's it's really, really great, oh. great acting. It's it's wonderful performance. He carries a sort of danger with him the whole way through that performance. Like in that first scene, you're like, he's going to fuck him up because he's complained about the noise. And you're like, the whole way through, you're mm. like, oh, danger, danger. Then the next scene, there's that whole bit where they wrestle. And yes. it's like... Yeah. Is he going to fuck him up? Like, oh God. And then yeah. the next scene, it's like, shit, he's he's helping him dispose of the body. But like, what's he going to do? Is he going to dob him in? Is he going to like, mm. what? Like, how's he going to respond to that? And then suddenly he's got something over him. And then he comes and gives Barton that fucking box, which like, from the second I saw it, I was like, danger, danger box. Nah. No. <laughs> um, and it is... Well, you've seen seven. Haven't you? <laughs> What's in the box? What's in the box? Yeah, we're not going to go into any spoilers for seven for anybody who's not seen. It, what's in the box? What it? What is in the box? It's interesting to me that the the actor who got an Oscar nomination on this was Michael Lerner. Yes. Um, what's that Jack about? Litnick. Well, I think I think he's terrific. In oh, it, he is. I, yeah. yeah. It's a strange one. It's um, yeah, a bit of a mystery. There's a lot more to say about Charlie, maybe as we get towards the end. It's probably worth quickly touching on Mayhew. Yes. And, uh, Audrey. Uh, Audrey. Yeah. So Mayhew is a suffering artist. Again, in a sort of world of his own suffering, but he's got a very different approach to his art to Mm. Barton. So Barton talks about great work has to be 
dredged up from the soul. Whereas Mayhew just says, ah, oh, like making things up. And then he talks about escape. Escape, dear boy. Because <laughs> when, when we first meet Mayhew, we learn through Barton's reaction to meeting him that he is this kind of titan of art, that he is held yeah. up in such high esteem by other artists. And then when Barton kind of gets to know more of who he is as a person that devalues the art to Barton that hints at a real snobbery that Barton has for all of his desire to connect with the common man and speak on behalf of the common man he is um, a total snob kind of and especially when he finds out that Audrey has written some of uh, Mayhew's work or uh, unless that bit mm. is not true <laughs> unless that bit's not true but let's let's uh, let's imagine that it is yeah yeah for the time being. Do you think Mayhew's like a little uh, visit from the ghost of Christmas future? Yes, that's. I love that it's idea. It's like all that artistic brilliance was back wherever he came from and he came to LA and just became a drunk who can't write anything and gets his assistant slash lover to write all of his stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a um, it's a comment on as well the kind of the reach of Hollywood. The idea that Hollywood is this machine who takes quote unquote kind of true artists, authentic artists and kind of gobbles them up and then spits yeah. out wrestling movie after wrestling movie after wrestling movie <laughs> well I don't I don't think that that is the case but it's it is that thing that you were saying that contrast between kind of high art and low art and like who gets mm. to decide that his book called Nebuchadnezzar is higher art than I can't remember what's the name of the name of the screenplay that Barton writes what's it called it's called like oh. Mr Mr Hurley Burley or something or the Hurley Burley Man, or the Burley Man, or um, just God, what a performance! John Mahoney is <laughs> so wonderful. He was from Blackpool, you know. What? John Mahoney was from Blackpool. I can't believe that. <laughs> God, that's yeah, that's shocked. Born... That's really shocked me. And yeah, he was just just a terrific actor. Yeah, he was. What do you make of Audrey's role in in all of this? Were there any female screenwriters in Hollywood at the time? I think I think there were one or two. Yeah, I mean, women were. Mm, massively involved in Hollywood as directors but right at the start of the kind of Hollywood system and then as mm. you got into the talkies they massively got pushed out if they were screenwriters they probably weren't credited as such what I took Audrey as is representative of the uncredited labour that is put in by anyone who is a friend or family member of a creative person um, because sure. I think that the majority of creative people need what I can only describe as like doulas <laughs> they need mid <laughs> they need like midwives for their creativity um, and Audrey <laughs> yes. is she's she's the uncredited creative midwife for both Mayhew and Barton Fink and without her and without all the people who support the creative people in their lives, it can't all happen in the brain. It's got to be talked about or it doesn't develop. And that's what she does. She get, I mean, what does she get for it? Murdered, you know? Well, yeah. And so what, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, what, what do you make of the fact that she gets murdered if we're taking it in that perspective? Like to see it through well past its uh, natural life as a metaphor. Uh, <laughs> I think that her murder is part of her creative midwifery. It's a sacrifice sure. she makes in order to... Because he, um, you know, after the murder, he can't, he has to put earplugs in to shut the outside world off so he can keep writing. It's like, ah, her murder unlocks in him the story that needs to be told. That is his masterpiece. As he just allows the, her, the blood stain from her murder to just 
just be on the bed. He doesn't give a fuck about it. It's more what it <laughs> no, means. She's to... there. Can we flog any more out of it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. I think I think uh, I think it's well and truly flogged. It's flogged. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so after Audrey's been murdered and the body has been disposed of and Barton's been told to look after a box that supposedly contains Charlie's personal items but may not may not <laughs> well he does say actually um, at the end his little sign off is this, that box it's not mine yeah <laughs> yeah so then the uh, Barton gets a visit from these detectives who say that Walter is somebody else called Carl Munt and he's known as Madman Munt, and he's a serial killer whose modus operandi is to uh, behead people. What's in the box? <laughs> oh, what is in that box? Oh dear, oh dear. Um, uh, Barton gets a, a second visit from these detectives, as we alluded to, and they've they've read his finished play, uh, his, read, his finished screenplay. Sorry, and they're sort of they're deriding it and that's when you get the moment where suddenly it gets hotter mm. and Barton goes Charlie's back and there's smoke coming from the lift and then before you know it Charlie is there and one of the detectives goes he's complying <laughs> at which point Charlie pulls a huge shotgun out of the out of the bag and just does them both in but saying the words Heil Hitler yes and uh, before that point he has charged he has sprinted mm-hmm. up the burning hallway well the, the the hallway sort of catches fire as he runs every bit that he runs past mm. it's like he's setting it on fire with his rampage what's he shouting he's shouting look upon me I'll I'll show you the life of the mind. Look upon me. I'll show you the life of the mind. He's screaming it at Barton, essentially. And um, he g- delivers this incredible speech uh, to Barton. It's 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 almost the sort of villain confessing to his crimes and the reasons that he did it. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's sort of almost in that in that mold. But kind of also why the position that Barton has found himself in has been brought upon himself, and it's his fault. Yeah. Um, and he has he he's so kind of convivial as he's saying all of this stuff apart from when he screams like because you didn't listen well he says you because you don't listen because you don't listen yeah 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 it's like it's it's an ongoing yeah yeah it's an ongoing problem that barton has he just doesn't fucking listen yeah uh this sense of entitlement that barton has artistic elite coming and looking down on the common man and telling them how to behave. Ugh. Yeah, he, say, he says, you, you're just a tourist with a typewriter. Oh my God, what a line. I love that so much. It's I, I live here. <laughs> you're just a tourist with a typewriter. And then we've got mm. the final, final scene, which takes place on the beach. Yeah, I toyed with uh, asking you about the painting mm. when we were discussing the hotel itself. Um, because all through the film, since Barton moved into that hotel room, um, there's been this painting on the wall in that room of a woman on a beach looking out to sea. Mm -hmm. What does that represent to you? What what do you think that's about? I don't know, really. When Barton has his, like, flurry of inspiration after Audrey has been Mm -hmm. murdered, he's got the picture of the woman looking out to sea and he has the photograph of Charlie all trussed up in his finest salesman get-up posing next to this car, which is a massive contrast to the Charlie that we actually see who's kind of just in his shirt cuffs and he's sweating and he's like 
a bit of a mess or he's in his underwear and he's a bit grimy and so that's a kind of idealised image and to me that's like Barton fully rejecting real life inspiration and instead using an idealised image as his inspiration Mm -hmm. for writing this thing which makes the thing that he has written even though he thinks of it as being the greatest thing he's ever written and oh I just want to show you something beautiful to me that is like no it's a it's a kind of shell it's a kind yeah it's not really but apart from that I don't really know what about what, what what do you think? To me, bearing in mind how I sort of uh, took the film mm. on this viewing, to me, it's sort of representative of the life he could have and the tranquility he mm. could have if he could just stop banging his head against the wall. <laughs> He's got these ideas about what his life should be and what he should be achieving. Mm. And that's completely unattainable. And he's just making himself more and more and more and more unhappy. Mm. And he keeps looking at this painting. And that is the life that he could have. It's such a sort of peaceful mm. image. And he could have that peace in his life if he could just, well, as as the studio executive tells him, just grow up. Mm. You know what I mean? You don't have to be tortured artist. Because he, he keeps talking about that as his job. That's what his job is, is to suffer <laughs> and dredge yeah. these things up. That's not what his life has to be. And I wonder at the end, when he's sitting there on the beach and the woman comes along and sits in front of him and the last thing we see is her in the pose from the painting. Mm. And he's got the box there with him. I wonder if he doesn't make a decision. Fuck it, I'm done. Yeah, done with being a writer. Done trying to pursue whatever unatt- unattainable thing it is that is making him so unhappy. It's it's significant that the, she says, like, because to him, you know, he has been utterly oblivious to everything going on outside of the world of making movies. And then he meets this woman on the beach and he says, you're very beautiful. Are you in the movies? And she goes, oh, don't be silly. It's part of him realising that none of it means that much. It's okay for it to be a kind of frippery. And yeah, I love that reading that it's him making a decision. Maybe it's not so much making a decision, but it's just a Mm -hmm. moment of going, oh, like... I am a dishevelled mess with potentially a woman's severed head in a box. <laughs> and here's yes. this chilled out lady who's just looking at the sea. And yeah. life could be like that. It doesn't have to be this. this. <laughs> and he does look a fright, doesn't he? He does look he, like... Oh, he look, he's, yeah, he's really... He looks like he's been through yeah. it. <laughs> well, he's, yeah, he's emerged from a burning building. Covered in mosquito bites. Covered still. in mosquito bites with severed head in a box. Oh, dear. Yeah. In order to deliver this manuscript that he thinks is so high quality, he had to suffer Mm -hmm. more than you could possibly imagine to get this out of him. And actually what the woman on the beach represents is like, hey, you suffered to give them something they don't want. So why don't you try not giving a fuck and just churning out stuff they do want? sit on the beach. Yeah. Yeah. I I hope that's the decision he makes anyway. I'll just be... A writer, then, rather than a writer. A writer. (laughs) (laughs) Much like Mulholland Drive, it is a film that I will get a lot more out of the more I watch it. And I'm Mm -hmm. very grateful for all the very clever people on the internet who have very kindly contributed to the Wikipedia page. You can say things like, um, "It's actually well, there's a apparently there's a whole um, homoerotic." thing going on between Charlie and Barton. I'm sure there is. Yeah. I intend to make myself a sleep suit like Barton Fink's sleep suit because me and Richard the whole way through we were like, I want whatever that is that he's got on. (laughs) It's like a jumpsuit but it's got like an elasticated bit at the back. It's great. I want it. (laughs) 
I've got so much out of talking to you about it. Yeah, it's been great. As it always, as always happens, I am worried I have nothing to say and then the records just get longer, Ed. So, shall we sort out what we're going to watch next week? Yes, let's play the game. So, um, I'd like to hear what you would have chosen, um, what mm-hmm. you think I've chosen, and then I'll reveal what mm-hmm. I have in fact chosen. Okay, so as far as what I would have chosen, there were uh, three options as far as I was concerned. <laughs> For me, it was going to be either another uh, movie about a hotel uh, and I would have chosen The Grand Budapest Hotel. Lovely. Yeah, it really made me think of A Grand Budapest Hotel when we first met Chet and he's in his bellboy outfit. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's zero. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so there was, that was an option. So the film that Barton is trying to write is uh, a wrestling picture starring Wallace Beery. So I thought, well, why not have a look at a boxing picture starring Wallace Beery? Um, So I was thinking 1931's The Champ, mm. um, which I can't imagine you've actually picked because it's quite hard to track down. Mm. Uh, we need to get DVD copies. I don't know if you... Um, I did spend quite a bit of time thinking about picking a wrestling picture, um, if I could find one, mm-hmm. and then I couldn't. But picking a sports movie um, from that era. Well, yeah, indeed. And yeah, the, the Wallace Beery as a prize fighter, it, it's the it's the movie that Barton's trying to write, yeah. essentially, is, is a Wallace Beery fighting yeah. picture. Also sort of down the wrestling picture route, we could have gone for... Uh, Aronofsky's The Wrestler. Yes. The other one <laughs> that I, I kind of hope you have gone with. Um, <laughs> I would have, I would have followed Steve Buscemi and made us watch Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> There's no bad options if you follow Steve Buscemi because Con Air would be oh, another true. great one. That came into my head as well. I love Con Air, as you know, but yeah, I've yeah. seen it more times than I can count, and I've only seen Armageddon the once. So oh well. <laughs> that was why I would pick Armageddon. It's Batshit. Batshit. I fucking love that whole section of the like genre of um, the big disaster movies. Like I loved the mm. core, Deep Impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fuck it, all of them, all of them. <laughs> no, I don't think you've picked any of those though. As much as you've been trying to not pick horror movies, I think you've probably gone. Well, there is obviously a movie about a blocked writer going mad in a hotel. <laughs> Ah. Aaron, you've picked The Shining. Go <laughs> <laughs> put me out my It's misery. a great shout. I did wonder about The Shining, especially since you've just been on a little Kubrick binge. I was like, actually, it might be quite yeah. a good time. Um, it's sort of fresh in your mind. I haven't done that. There were two avenues for me. First one was to pick another film that ends with the question what's in the box and to have a look at seven yeah, sure. um, but much like you were saying at the start like if you need to if you want to listen to two people talk about seven there's a lot of podcasts you can listen to we'll, we will come to it at some point I'm sure, yeah. oh, um, sure. but I I do just want to stay with Hollywood for a little for another week so we've had Mulholland Drive which is a contemporary look at contemporary Hollywood mm-hmm. we've had Barton Fink which is a contemporary look at old Hollywood and now I'd okay. like to have a look at old Hollywood through old Hollywood. Okay. Also, we've had a look at um, someone desperately trying to get into the system in Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. We've had a look at a writer who is in the system but doesn't quite know what to do once he's there. Uh, and then I thought, oh, let's have a look at um, a studio head during the studio system in a film mm-hmm. made in the the studio system so we are going to be having a look um, at the multiple award winning hailed as one of the greatest films of all time ever Mm -hmm. we're going to be having a look at Vincent Minnelli's 
1952 film The Bad and the Beautiful, starring Kirk Douglas, Lana Turner, Gloria Graham, Elaine Stewart, Barry Sullivan and Walter Pidgeon. Okay. Have you heard of this film? Do you know anything about this film? I don't know anything about it. I'm really excited to look at something from the 40s. Yeah. So um, it's so I mean, oh, 50s, it was sorry, very, very early 50s. So uh, but so yeah. it is very much about the period of time that Barton Fink is trying to write a movie for. But um, yeah, I Ooh. think it would be I think it'll make for some really interesting discussion. And then we probably will have exhausted our conversations about Hollywood. And maybe it'll be time to move <laughs> Certainly, on. I think for the time being. <laughs> I also just thought it might be quite nice to um, get into a different time period because we mm. briefly went into the uh, 30s with Frankenstein. So it's quite nice to kind of get into the 50s a little bit and see what's going on there. Cool. I'm really excited for that. Yeah. Where, where can I find you it? You can find it in all the usual places to rent. Unfortunately, it isn't available on any streaming services um, as part of a package, but it is readily available to rent and um, or buy for a couple of quid, I think, on Amazon Prime and things like that. So it's it's uh, easy to get hold of off of the internet. So yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Unbreakable Movie Chain. We've had such a blast talking about Barton Fink. Please do give us a little review rate us um, share us on social media um, tell your friends enemies acquaintances uh, all about the podcast if you have enjoyed it every little bit that you can do to help us spread the word is so so appreciated you can get in touch with us on all of the social medias they are all in the show notes and we would love to hear any thoughts you've got at our email account which is moviechain at outlook.com join us next time for our discussion on uh what the hell have I picked? <laughs> what have I picked? Bad and the Beautiful. <laughs> Hang on, Bad and the Beautiful. Yeah, the Bad and the Beautiful. Uh, so it'll be the last um, full main episode of the podcast before Christmas. We've got a bonus episode coming out on Boxing Day, but we are then taking a short break so that we can make merry over the Christmas times. Um, so we will be skipping our regular scheduled release on the 2nd of January and we'll be back with the main pod on the 9th of January. So um, if you're sitting there um, with your hangover from New Year's Eve thinking, where the heck's my app? <laughs> it doesn't exist yet. <laughs> doesn't exist yet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. We love you a lot. And bye. We've got something to discuss. <laughs> I was going to say, I am also, I mean, we have been talking for nearly... Five hours. So I I do. I've I've got some dinner. I will need to eat something at some point and maybe talk to my husband. (laughs) Who I haven't seen all day. (laughs) Yeah, this uh, this 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 won't take long. I just want a very quick chat about Saltburn because, well, really, I want to know what the movie was that you saw that you loved so much and that excited you so much. So, um, yeah, uh, just a quick reminder before we start. Anybody who doesn't want spoilers for Saltburn, tune out now. We'll see you next time. Um, thank you so much for yes. listening now for those of you who've <laughs> right. stayed we're about to get real spoilery mm-hmm. on Saltburn so don't listen yep. past this point if you don't want spoilers on Saltburn so um, just to bring you up to date with what's gone on here so I saw Saltburn as part of a film festival back in October we're recording this in mid-December Ed has just been to mm-hmm. see Saltburn when it's had its general release. Now, I really liked it. Like the basic bitch like I the am. basic bitch you are. <laughs> God, do you know what we haven't talked about, Ed? Sorry. Um, you haven't told mm-hmm. me about the short film festival that you went to in Derby. It was lovely. I'm really glad. Yeah. Good. Um, let's talk about something that you hated more than you could possibly say. 
I really enjoyed it. Saltburn was a um, a real mm. highlight for me. I came out with a real buzz on. Mm. You you yeah. had a buzz on, didn't you? But it was a different type of buzz. It was a buzz of rage. Yeah, I had a kind of opposite buzz. Context and frame of mind is so important when you go into these yeah. things. So I don't know if I just wasn't in the right frame of mind for Maybe. it. Maybe. As soon as it opened and we were in... Oxford and it was all rah-rah, um, very privileged Oxbridge students doing their Oxbridge thing. I immediately was like, oh, for fuck's sake, I'm so done mm-hmm. with this. Like, I, I'm so fed up of seeing that world. Mm. It doesn't interest me anymore. Sure. If it ever really did. I, I'm so bored of seeing those beautiful buildings. <laughs> I'm so tired of watching them swan around in their gowns and go to their fucking meetings with the tutors and do all that. I'm so sick of the trappings of Oxford and Cambridge as if that is, you know, that is the pinnacle of everything, Mm. as if it actually speaks to the existence of the majority of people in this country. Um, It it doesn't. It also is a sort of like a a Harry Harry Potterification of of British educational establishments, this sort of um, view of uh, British universities from America Mm. as they're all like fucking Hogwarts. You know what I mean? It, It just, it, so it got my back up kind of immediately and then it didn't really do anything to uh, to to win me over um, mm. because all of the characters are so obnoxious that I I didn't warm to them at all, mm. including Barry Keegan in the lead, who we're supposed to see this world through. I think my problem with that central character is that the film kept us completely out of his head as much as possible because he's because he's lying because he's not what he appears to be so whatever it is two thirds of the way through when you get that revelation that oh actually he lives in because he, he's supposed to be this um, lad from a very deprived background in Liverpool and drug addict mother dead father I think I think he's I think he's terrific in it he's this like he's got this incredible presence you look at him and go who is this what mm. is this his presence is very unsettling he is unsettling yeah and he can he can be pathetic and he can be sinister all in the same mm-hmm. moment yeah so there's all of there's, there's all of that that is admirable and I think it looked beautiful mm-hmm. but I come back to my problems with so ca- character and narrative so the story it was telling me was the story of a lad from a deprived background who is taken advantage of by these terrible poshos. But then it turns out that's not what's happening. Okay, fine. You want a twist. But up until that point, we've not been drawn in to um, this central character because the film is spending so much effort keeping us away from the fact that Mm -hmm. he's lying and lying and lying and building on those lies so that it can give us that twist, which actually, to be honest with you, when the twist happened, I went, yeah, like, Obviously, didn't catch me by surprise. No, like actually, up up up, and, up until that point, I'd sort of got pissed off and gone. Emerald Fennell just believes that working class people all live in slums. Up until that point, I was getting cross with the director. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then I was like, oh no, she 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 has she she has uh, yeah yeah she has thought about that. Right. I would like to preface everything I'm about to say by saying, mm-hmm. I first of all loved your review that you did on TikTok of Saltburn. I think it was so well put and I totally understood where you were coming from with it all and everything that you've just said yes I totally get where you're coming from with it so starting with the beginning I think and I don't know how I know this and I need to rewatch the film to kind of really put my finger on it but I think from the Mm -hmm. opening frame I think that the point of view of the the camera is one Mm -hmm. of disdain for 
Oxford. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going, it, it mm-hmm. knows how gross it is. It made me feel extremely uncomfortable because I recognised a lot of the types of people. I went to Newcastle University, which was full of, as we called them, Ra's, um, Ugg boots. <laughs> yeah, <sure>. um, and <laughs> it was really trendy to have your Jack Will gilet and your Ugg boots uh, yeah. and all of that. So I, I, I recognised all of that. <laughs> It's almost like, and I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but it did feel a little bit like, look how ghastly these people are. All of them. Everyone Mm -hmm. is so awful. And they're going to have a dreadful time. Do you want to come and watch it? (sighs) What did I think? I'm just going to spurt things at you as I come, as I think of it. I thought that the the chap who played the mate, the friend, the American friend, uh, I thought, Uh, I thought he was quite bad at, he's a cousin. Is he a cousin? I thought he was quite bad at acting. And I didn't like him very much. And I didn't enjoy him on the screen at all. Sure. I loved its fucked upery. I loved its fucked upness. After he's given the sister oral sex while she's on her period and you have that shot of him in the yeah. bath with the blood coming off his mouth. I was like, mm. I now understand what this film is about. I okay. understand that he is a leech attaching himself to this family and he's going to do everything he can to get pa- sure. the power um and so for me from mm-hmm. that point of view like every everything after that i was like i knew where it was going i just didn't know how we were going to get there and i could kind of enjoy the journey yeah. i suppose i found oliver really unsettling and really creepy but i did kind of want him to win mm. i did feel an amount of sympathy for the f- of, of the family actually i did mm, um yeah. which is a weird feeling yeah well because actually they don't do anything wrong well really. apart from they're being obnoxious and, awful. and oblivious and and oblivious they are they're, they're and i can't believe i'm about to compare it to the great gatsby um but they're they're what is referred to in the great gatsby as careless people yeah yeah but they invite this young lad into their home you know for however long who knows whether they'll just sort of have their film be amused by him and then toss him aside uh, like they do with Kerry Mulligan's yes. character but they they don't actually do anything to really deserve their fate mm. which was what led me to the most controversial part of my review which is that I felt that I felt that it was a film that was saying oh, be beware yeah. be beware those of a lower social status than mm. you because they they might not be that hard up actually yeah and yeah they're probably just going to come and come and take everything you've got um it 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 really it, re- that, it sat very wrong with you feeling yeah. left a sour taste in my mouth and i don't know i'd i'd, I'd be surprised if that was emerald Fennell's intention oh god no i don't but think that, it is at but all that, that was the that was the read mm. that i got off it that was a sort of a just a sort of subconscious attitude that came off mm. the film to me in the end and i was like oh dear I think that I I think Um, that I I certainly don't think that's her intention with it. I'd love to read and read some interviews with her about it. I know that there has been a lot of stuff because it has been a really divisive film. Mm -hmm. I think that our readings of it are actually quite representative of the reception of the film, generally speaking, (laughs) which is quite interesting, isn't it? I I, I mean, the thing is, I I, I did. I'm trying to think back. I I need to rewatch it to do a kind of deeper dive into it and tr- to try and interrogate exactly what it was about it that I enjoyed so much because I can't yeah. I can't retrofit it I can't now pretend that I didn't enjoy it as much as I did because I did come out no. buzzing about it a lot of the stuff that really riled you was I didn't even see it because I was so attracted mm. by the shiny fucked uppery like sure. I was so <laughs> delighted that he fucked that grave <laughs> because. It was so mm. gruesome, and I loved him drinking the jizzy bath water, and I loved him 
kind of vampirically washing his face of period blood and all yeah. of that stuff. And and, and I think I, once we'd established that Oliver was a fucking weirdo, I was delighted sure. to watch how far he'd go. I, d- I didn't feel like I learned anything about him beyond he's a weirdo. But it wasn't about like, him being a weirdo. You meet him, it was a, he's, a, he's a misfit, and then it turns out he's a it weirdo. It was a kind of like <laughs> weird middle class justice that he was taking out. And it's like, I don't know, he was a, he was a terrible kind of parasite but and i do think that there was a complexity in there because i think that as much as he loathed the family and loathed everything about them he does want what they've got for him all for himself he isn't happy to just be a part of that he just wants it for himself but i do think that he his feelings towards felix were genuinely positive like i do think that he did love him in a way because actually there's nothing wrong that's what he says at the start of the film yeah but not enough to give up on the long game of taking everything that's theirs completely and exclusively for himself. In a way, he's actually kind of, it's like the worst form of conservatism of like, he he like, it's like, do you know what? It isn't enough for a household of 50 people to get to live in this place. And it's not fair for this family of four to get to enjoy this stuff and hold parties for people. I want it and I want to mm. shut everyone out of it. I want to be so utterly and totally completely alone with, with these treasures and this wealth i love and but and i did also just i found richard e grant and rosamund pike so good they were so good and funny rosamund pike in particular yeah for she's me. amazing I, th- I thought i thought rosamund pike was really terrific yeah yeah just so it's so funny so funny but i yeah, think she, that's the script yeah. as well i think that it's a really clever script i generally speaking i'm really not a fan of like social embarrassment stuff i really mm-hmm. the bullying thing as you know i can't really yeah. hope and like the karaoke scene where the awful cousin puts on a karaoke song and gets him to start singing it and it's all about like you pay my rent and stuff so I was a little bit like I can't wait for you to get your comeuppance and I was slightly sad that we didn't Mm. see him get his head caved in actually um And actually, the the character that we saw die in the most brutal way is actually, I think, the most sympathetic character. And that was Rosamund Pike's character. And that's not just because I loved her performance so much, but I did find her quite a sympathetic character. I mean, she's vain and dreadful, yeah. but I, there was a sympathy. No, actually, no, Richard E. Grant's character was the most sympathetic of the family, I thought. But I don't know. I... Uh... I- yeah, I think for me, I just, I wanted, if they if she'd just gone, ah, fuck the twist. If she'd just told us the story um, in a slightly straighter way and let us into Oliver's head a bit more so that we knew who he was from the start, so that we can see him and these machinations and these manipulations that he that he undergoes and maybe maybe on a second viewing it would work but there's nothing about it that makes me want to go back and watch it yeah, again yeah. Um, i think um, <laughs> you know i what think mean? i because um, i do i do generally speak i mean it's the alfred hitchcock thing of um, mm-hmm. if there's a bomb under the table show yeah. the audience that there's a bomb there so they can feel the tension but i don't think that applies to saltburn but also i don't think it was a twist i think it was supposed to be because like if because if, if it wasn't supposed to be a twist why would she have kept all that information from us i don't know mate <laughs> Do you know, do you know, do you know, do you know, do you know exactly what, I mean? what you're like, saying? Why, why, why withhold that if you're not intending to surprise us with the information? I understand everything that you're saying, but I mm. just don't, I, I, I don't have an explanation for why I don't think it applies. I just, it's like an, it's like a gut thing. Well, because, because I don't think the twist works. I, I likened it to a version of The Sixth Sense where Bruce Willis knows all along oh. that he's, you know, it, it just, it wouldn't work. It would feel empty because... 
he hasn't learned anything at that moment. We've just learned something about him, but we've been following him this whole time. So it's not really a revelation. It's not revelation to the character. But the, but the- it's just a revelation to us. It's not even re- it's not even a revelation to his victims, really. It is though. Um, in in Saltburn. Because uh, well, yeah, it is. You know, it I mean, it's it's maybe. But they're not the people whose eyes we're seeing this through. But we kind of are a bit. Oh. Yeah, a bit. Okay, I think. I don't think. <laughs> I I think that the eyes we're seeing this through. Uh, I don't think it's anyone who's actually in the film. I think that it is a right. v- the the view on the film is almost impartial. So it's a sort of, so it's a sort of om- omniscient, omnipresent, omnipresent, view. but not omniscient. So well, well yeah, I was going to say because we don't because because we don't see everything, we don't know everything. Yeah, it, but we we I, see. For me, this the screenplay fundamentally is 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 flawed. I see because of that. I think that we do see everything within a certain time frame. What by the end of the movie? Yeah, no, as in. We see everything <laughs> from Oliver's first day at Oxford through to uh-huh. the end. Well, I, Do you know what I mean? And like, he doesn't go home. Yeah, so so we are viewing it through Oliver's eyes. No, we're, we're view, we're but view- apart from the bits that, that the director wants to keep away from us. No, it's it's not true, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> we're seeing, we're seeing, yeah. we are... Mm-hmm seeing i don't know i just i'm not no I don't, i'm not with you on it but i can't explain myself while in a bed this isn't fair <laughs> it's not fair it's you not can't, fair I you can't needed, you're so not allowed fair. to pre-warn me that we're going to have a discussion about it and then expect me to be able to have a discussion that's not fair <laughs> oh yeah no absolutely um, <laughs> yeah I, I, I gave you absolutely no warning <laughs> apart from apart from when i, I told you two weeks ago (laughs) i must watch it again i must watch it again this is we're gonna have maybe we should sit down and watch it together yeah the saltburn diaries it can be a continuing bonus episode series of as we continue to unpick all right this yeah this this is a conversation to be revisited somewhere down the line (laughs) in the future um i think we should uh yeah both of us watch it at the same time, in the same room, yeah. one day, and have a chat about yeah. it immediately. Great. Cool. Okay, I'd love that. <sighs> um, <laughs> hey, right. listeners, mm. what the heck do you think about Saltburn? Please get I in touch. I just can't wait to <laughs> expand this discussion with everyone. Yeah. And yeah, if you've made it all the way through, uh, thank you so much for sticking with us this long. And um, we can't wait to speak to you in a couple of weeks. We're doing uh, The Bad and the Beautiful from 1952, which you can get on your streaming services for a small rental fee. Thank you so much for listening. Get in touch. We love you. Goodbye. Love you lots. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>